This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. The 2024 United States presidential election is less than nine months away, and the dynamics are beginning to reveal themselves. Today on the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, I sit down with Ross, also known as the Abbot of Unreason, to discuss a truly amazing essay he wrote about the current challenges facing the Republican Party. Stick around. You don't want to miss this one. Ross, welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thanks for joining me today. Lovely to see you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to some of the current ideas that you have? Yeah, um, not giving too much away. I'm an archaeologist sort of by trade, but from 2016 onward, I got onto Twitter and Twitter never let me go (laughs) and have become increasingly interested in politics, specifically electoral politics and sort of the ways that, that can be used to advance progressive goals and the ways that it's it's an imperfect system. It's difficult to work through, but it is worth it because it is the way to create the most change the, the most quickly. Right. I was actually originally, back when I was in high school, I was actually a, a Republican. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> yes. My sort of political views have uh, shifted quite far to the left, but I think that some of my disgust and also glee at watching the Republican Party fall apart is based in my former affiliations there. <laughs> that It's been quite a while since that was true, um, but I, I think it's worth mentioning, especially when I'm talking about the Republican Party falling apart. Sure, definitely. I'm a member of DSA. Um, I, yeah. I recently joined. I know that that is uh, a contentious topic among some of your listeners. Um, And I I hope to make a case that DSA do not have to be the bad guys and that there there can be a way we can all sort of go working forward. Okay. I'm based in the Pacific Northwest after living in the UK for about a decade. So I've got a lot of perspective having sort of watched all of this conflagration from over the Atlantic and also seeing what a center-left party that really stands for absolutely nothing uh, actually looks like, and that would be the Labor Party under Pierce Harbor. <laughs> yeah, they get held up as a model sometimes, and it's not always a good one. Oh, God, no. In fact, a lot of the time it isn't at this point. It really is a sort of situation where Jeremy Corbyn, well, I, I think his heart is in the right place in some cases. He's sort of the kind of off-putting backbencher extremist that people accuse Bernie Sanders of being. <laughs> and correspondingly, Sir Keir Starmer is basically the sort of milk host centrist kind of that doesn't believe in anything and kind of will give in to conservatives at any opportunity that people seem to think that Joe Biden is. So it's <laughs> it's kind of interesting to look at that instructive. It's like, it really could be a lot worse than it is. <laughs> right. Definitely. 
So speaking of the decline and fall and fall and fall of the Republican Party, you wrote an absolute banger a while back, and we'll link it in the show notes. A lot of people, including myself, have been watching the results of the various races that have been happening, and we are seeing a very clear pattern of Republicans underperforming where they're supposed to be. In fact, just last Tuesday, there was a special election in Florida in a plus 13 Republican district, and it was wash, rinse, repeat. The Democrats ended up winning that seat. So the electorate that came out for this special in Florida was about 44% GOP, 39% Democrat, and 16% no party affiliation. And how they voted was Democrat 51%, Republican 48%. And the best part about this is that they even actually tried to rat fuck the guy. According to the Orlando Sentinel, quote, mysterious text messages were also sent to Democrats from a supposed progressive group claiming that Keene agreed with DeSantis on the controversial parental rights and education law, a.k.a. don't say gay. Keene has been a vocal critic of the law. The group, Florida Committee for Progressive Values, listed Austin Hurst of River Lake Boulevard in Bartow, Polk County, as its registered agent, chair, and treasurer. According to state records, a Michael Austin Hurst is registered at that address as a Republican. I mean, we've seen this before. This is the kind of thing they do, and the Democrat still ends up pulling out a win in that race. And your piece actually puts out a very convincing argument for what's happening here. So what do you think's going on? I think that the Dobbs effect is very real. I think that it also extends beyond the issue of abortion. For a very, very long time, pretty much as long as I've been politically aware, there has been a certain degree of denial among the American electorate about Republicans and what they actually want. Right. There are a lot of people that have voted Republican down ballot because they think it'll bring them lower taxes or a better economy, which is really incomprehensible at this point, given that the Every Republican administration seems to run the economy into a ditch. It's it's just sort of terminal Reagan brain, and I'm not entirely sure how we, <laughs> we snap out of it, but maybe this is a start. But there's this perception that Republicans talk about repealing abortion, reversing Roe v. Wade, and sort of all of these other social conservative reactionary causes just sort of as a, as a way to motivate their base. It's not something they're actually going to do. And then we had the Dobbs decision in which Roe v. Wade was repealed. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this entire delusion sort of shattered. Right. So it's like, oh, they do actually mean what they have been saying all these times. And that has implications for what they're talking about with gay rights, what they're talking about with even birth control. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With the case of Mike Johnson, no-fault divorce. (laughs) It feels like it has finally broken through to swing voters who, alas, do in fact exist, (laughs) that Republicans actually mean what they say, and they absolutely hate everything that they're hearing. Right, right. They're realizing right now, it's like, oh, this was not just Democrat rhetoric designed to scare Mm -hmm. people. Because when you see them coming for birth control, you see them coming for no-fault divorce, it's like, hey, wait a minute. This is several levels past what anybody who's not a fanatical Republican is prepared to actually accept. And we've seen some results, even in places like Kansas, where you would think that they would have an easy win on some of these things, but we've seen the voters turn out to reject a lot of these ideas because they've done their usual trick where they've absolutely overreached and tried to go for absolutely everything that they could. And now we're seeing 
definitely what looks like a backlash. You also mentioned that a lot of the Republican state parties are having some money issues at this point, some fundraising issues. Can we elaborate on that a little bit, what we're seeing here? So I think one thing that needs to be kept in mind is when Trump won in 2016, his candidate, his campaign was a mess. I mean, that was Mm -hmm. pretty obvious from the, the outside. You had just sort of a bunch of of hangers on and grifters kind of running the entire thing. What made it work in the end, especially in the key swing states, was that there were very strong Republican state parties. They built up basically from the sort of 2010 midterm wipeout from the Democrats, and then following that, the brutal gerrymandering across all of these fairly close states that made them into solid Republican. Right. And while the Democratic state parties had sort of floundered in the wake of this, Republican parties had become much stronger. They could raise a lot of money. They had a lot of control of sort of the political machinery, and they could really kind of work their advantage. One of the consequences of Trump and the sort of loyalty to Trump becoming the most defining feature of any good Republican is that a lot of the sort of older, and I mean, not even that much older, like we're talking like Gen X people, not necessarily just right, boomers, right. have been driven out of the party or have retired. It just seems like a miserable time. And these people were never really committed to any kind of political project. So they'll just sort of run off into the private sector. Mm-hmm. And we've started to see the consequences of that, between that and also the ideological extremism. So... It really sort of started, I think, in Arizona would be the, the best examples. They sort of went feral, kind of the way that I put it, right? sooner than basically anyone else, with appointing Chemtrail Kelly Ward as the, the state party chair. Mm-hmm. But it's it's continued along with that, and sort of as, as Democrats have made more gains down ballot, things have sort of steadily started to get worse. And the reporting that's come out that... The parties in Arizona and Michigan and Colorado, which isn't as competitive as it used to be, but still it's it's an interesting case to look at. Yeah. That things are really quite dire there. And even some of the uh, the more the national fundraising apparatus has started to break down as well. Right. And it's interesting that you mentioned Arizona because it's the home of Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk, who is one of the big Republican players. And You mentioned grifters. Well, we've covered Charlie extensively on this program. Charlie is a community college dropout with a talent for getting old, rich, white guys to give him money. And he's really, really good at it. And it's interesting that they've built like a pretty strong media and like spectacle machine down there. But in terms of the actual state party on the ground that has to go out and get the votes and drive GOTV and the rest of it they seem to not be doing quite so well. And it says something to me about how their priorities have sort of shifted from winning on the ground to winning the internet. Yeah. Which is great, but (laughs) you still have to win on the ground at some point. (laughs) Is it great? Is it actually great? It's great for us. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's interesting, Arizona. I mean, John McCain was a very polarizing figure in that some people saw him as this maverick. Right. And I mean, frankly, he he's, was one of the Republicans that I liked back during that phase of my life. Other people being like, well, he's he's still a conservative. He's still voting for all of these terrible things. And his vote against appealing the ACA was essentially a vote out of spite for Mitch McConnell proceeding with the skinny repeal thing over his objections. So it wasn't 
it wasn't that he had a change of heart on right. the, the verges of the ACA. He just sort of was throwing a bit of a tantrum. Yeah, he wanted to give Mitch McConnell the finger one last time. Yeah, even if it did, in fact, save millions and millions of people their health coverage. Right. But I think that there was something to the kind of principled, conservative, almost somewhat libertarian, like not moderate necessarily, but certainly slightly iconoclastic sort of serious Republican vibe in Arizona. And it really has shown that a lot of these, particularly independents, because Arizona's got a particularly large amount of independents for whatever reason, are turning on this current iteration of the Republican Party. Right. And it obviously started with Biden winning Arizona, mm-hmm. or even before that with, with former Democrat uh, Kirsten Cinema beating out Martha McSally. That was sort of an, an interesting one because McSally was appointed by this sort of Republican, well, by by Doug Ducey, by, right. by the uh, Republican governor down there at the time. Yeah, the Republican government. So wasn't sort of a, a crazy, but just was a particularly ineffective candidate. Right. And managed to lose to both Cinema and to Mark Kelly. <laughs> That's one for the resume right there. Yes. I think that that is as much a function of the demographics shifting as anything else. Um Right. What's happened since then, I think, is different. It's not that the electorate is getting less old and white. It's that a lot of those old and white voters can't stand the Republican Party in Arizona. (laughs) And this does seem to be a, a recurring theme where as soon as a Republican state falls, as soon as its state Republican Party falls apart, as soon as it is lost on the national level, as soon as they lose senator spots, Everything just sort of seems to collapse from there. Right. We're even starting, well, hopefully starting to see the beginnings of it in Wisconsin, where the gerrymandered Republican state legislature has sort of held power, even though Tony Evers has won the last two gubernatorial elections. Right. Where they're kind of panicking because they haven't had to actually campaign or mm-hmm. try to win votes for about a decade now. And the judicial election they're going so hard in favor of the Democrat really shocked a lot of people. And it's possible Wisconsin's going to be the next one to fall, which would certainly be nice. Right. And I noticed that during 2022, when Ron Johnson, you know, came within a hair's breadth of not winning that race. And it was real close. That's that's one of the ones that I regret the most. I mean, that Susan Collins was... That one, it wasn't even particularly close. No. Ranked choice voting didn't even come into into play. To get within a point of knocking off Ron Johnson in a Democratic trifecta midterm with 9% inflation. Right. It's just devastating. There's something out there. Mandela Barnes was a good, it was a good candidate too. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. people tend to to look at his kind of, I don't know, some of the extreme things he said in the past. I, I really don't think that that had anything to do with it. The DSCC did not think he could win. They just didn't think they could win that election. And they sort of left him out to dry in the face of negative ads. And almost no candidate is going to be able to recover from that. And yet he came so close. Right. And it's a shock when an incumbent senator loses like ever. So to see a guy like Ron Johnson get that close against a guy like Mandela Barnes, it's like, oh, man, if we'd spent another million bucks in that race, who knows? (laughs) dumped less money directly into Florida. Right. I I do try to remind myself, though, that it has the sort of the the Senate kind of chance has gone the Democrats way once in a while. I think it's worth remembering in 2016, Maggie Hassan won by what, like 
a couple, a few hundred votes. Yeah, it wasn't much. Ridiculously narrow. Um, and Assan obviously won re-election big time, but you're talking about knocking off incumbents. That was one case where that tiny vote margin actually went in favor of Democrats. And another example, which is definitely worth talking about, is Catherine Cortez Mosto. Right. Where you had another kind of very close race that did swing the favor of Democrats. I think it can be easy to focus on things like Collins and things like Mandela Barnes versus Ron Johnson, even going back farther like McGinty against Toomey and that kind of thing. Mm. It swings both ways, the electoral math. So I think it's good to keep that in mind, that it doesn't always go badly for Democrats. It just feels like that sometimes. We're traumatized. There's such a disadvantage in terms of the states that produce senators and the reliance on red state senators like Tester and Sherrod Brown. Right. um, Well, Joe Manchin. (laughs) (laughs) Because you know we're getting somebody far worse than Joe Manchin coming in. It's just a... Oh, that's certainly true, but also I will not miss the mansion cycle, which was not, uh, contrary to what a lot of people thought, was not a, he arrives at the Democratic position, it is he arrives at his own idiosyncratic idiot position, like, complete Reagan Democrat brain. And you could tell the man was enjoying it. And you're just afraid that he's going to, like, take one last shot with the no labels thing. I'm not convinced that's going to happen. I, I think that Manchin's smarter politically than I think people give him credit for, and he knows this isn't going to work. I think he certainly enjoys the attention. Right. And is enjoying not being completely irrelevant now that he's not running for Senate. I could be wrong. That, that could age very badly. My theory is that he wants to turn it down in public. He wants to not get the blame for it. He wants to be the guy that is the principled, no, I'm going to be a principled Democrat. So in case, you know, the Democrats somehow get waxed in 24, he's in a good position to stand up and say, we need me in 28. Yeah, or he'll he'll claim that he somehow moved Biden towards the center, which obviously is just (laughs) the idea of Biden (laughs) as a leftist is just sort of like, (laughs) man, what? (laughs) Okay. So how do you see this all playing out in November? Early? It's obviously, you know, 10 and a half Uh, months until we get there, but what, what do you see going on? I mean, I I really think Biden is, in fact, the favorite. I have some serious reservations about the polls and and sort of how that's all going to play out. I think Democrats are definitely the favorites to take the House. I'd be really shocked if they didn't. Right. The Senate's going to be hard. It's a question of whether it's going to be easier for John Tester to win or to knock off Ted Cruz or Rick Scott. I think Sherrod Brown's looking relatively good right now, especially with Ohio showing more of it and of an interest in the sort of protecting the rights for abortion. Right. I love Tester. That is a very tough hill to climb in terms of partisanship. Yeah, Montana. That's that's a state that's gonna be real tough to win in, but you know, none of the alternatives look good when you've got Ted Cruz in Texas and we've, you know, seen that movie before. Well, you never know. I think in some ways that my my hot take would be, I honestly think at this point that Tester isn't that much more likely to win than Colin Elred or Ronald Gutierrez in Texas. Right. I think that it's plausible that even if Biden doesn't win Texas, the Democrat could run two or three points ahead, and that might be enough to tip it over. Cruz is not as unpopular as he used to be, which is slightly baffling given the whole Cancun thing. Uh-huh. Um, but he's still not that popular. 
it's interesting with Cruz because you see his social media sometimes where he will go from sort of the sort of doctrinaire like evangelical conservative thing to like weirdly kind of moderate positions on certain things <laughs> that he'll often get like blasted in the comments by all of the various lunatics. Um, I, I think he's aware that his position is a little more fragile than I think some people think that it is. Right. Cruz for all of his all of his faults is not an idiot. No, no, he's an incredibly smart guy from everything I've ever heard. Yeah, no, and I think that it shows that he's aware that his seat is not nearly as secure as a lot of people are, are taking it, which makes it harder for us, unfortunately, in terms of being able to to surprise him. Right. I think All Right is fine as a recruit. The thing with Chuck Schumer's recruits is that they tend to get chosen on the basis of their fundraising chops, which... Mm is certainly a way to assess Senate candidates and can be a very important way to do it. Not necessarily in terms of their electoral performance or their kind of appeal. I mean, the best example of this being Cal Cunningham, who was just sort of a nothing, but was great at raising money. Right. So, I, I mean, I'm more in favor of Ronald Gutierrez down there. Um, I think that he's he's got more going for him and plus running a, a Hispanic Democrat against Cruz seems like a great idea to me. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely the underdog in the primary, and I don't necessarily know that there's going to be a huge difference in terms of their electoral performance. But margins matter, so no, they do, they do. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. And one more thing that we kind of got into a little earlier before the show. One of the things that I keep being told is that everybody who's under thirty that's a Republican is a whole lot more far right, and I'm being nice about it than. <laughs> we've ever seen before you know they're all a bunch of nick fuentes fans and we saw that in that one video that desantis supposedly didn't have anything to do with but gee the campaign let a guy go real fast after that one it really strikes me as like they tried to stake out territory in that side of things that they thought would win i guess the online voters yeah i mean he lost his campaign on on twitter with Elon Musk, it was sort of like, right? what are you doing, man? I, I think that DeSantis was always a longer shot than people wanted to give it credit for because people right. were sort of bored of Trump and wanted there to be an alternative to Trump. Uh, I think there was a lot of delusion on the part of DeSantis supporters. They thought they had a star in DeSantis. They thought they had the next Reagan. Yeah, and it was funny. The truth of the matter is that the heir to Ronald Reagan is Donald Trump. <laughs> um, and that is, the, that is the truth that Republicans do not want to admit, that he is the culmination of the reactionary sort of performative style of governance that has led us to where we are. Yeah, agreed. It was definitely one of those things where you had a guy that set up kind of a blueprint. And it's really hilarious. You go back and you look now at like Reagan's position on immigration, go back and watch the footage of the 1980 debate between him and Bush, where they're both having this sort of platform of, we should not build fences. We should try to make the situation in Mexico better. So this stops being a problem. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly the, the, the major break between them and also kind of Reagan's stalwart opposition of at least left-wing authoritarians. Right. Certainly not not right wing ones. So I mean it's not it's not a perfect one, but I think in terms of messaging, it's sort of that he's the logical conclusion of sort of the, the beginnings of the Reagan revolution. Right. What it sort of actually led into. 
Uh, and that is, yeah, that's a truth that Republicans really aren't willing to accept. Nope. They think that he's this aberration when actually he's he's the climax of all of this garbage going back to Newt Gingrich and Pat Buchanan and everything. Absolutely. So if I were a Republican strategist, one of the things I think I'd be happiest about right now and maybe kind of counting on to save my ass in November would be the, in my opinion, extremely naive idea that there's no difference between Biden and Trump. Now, this is silly and patently false, but that hasn't stopped it from gaining some serious traction on the left, especially online. So do you think this is something that actually manifests in the real world or is this something that's an online fad? I think it's hard to tell at this point, but I think it I think one thing that needs to be remembered is especially if you're on Twitter, Twitter has somehow become even more insular and even less representative of the American public, I think, than it was before Elon Musk took it over and got rid of all the moderation teams and sort of all of the things that actually made it work that you really only got the sickos left. Yeah, pretty (laughs) Um, much. Especially on politics, Twitter. And a lot of these people are very driven by engagement. And right now we're so far out from the, the election that there's even this kind of, I, I mean, I think one of the, the things that kind of, really demonstrates how disconnected discourse on Twitter is then uh, from sort of the general public is the sheer number of people in polls who don't actually think it's going to be Trump versus Biden <laughs> in this election. Right? They genuinely think that one or both of the parties will step in and get rid of these like unpopular nominees. Every time I see one of those polls, it's insane. It's like, no, 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 this is how it's going to be. It's wild. It is a, a willful delusion. Mm-hmm. They're like, clearly this can't happen again. It's just like, all right, sure. That's not how the Democratic and Republican parties work. That's sort of, that's how nope. parties work in a lot of other countries where they can sort of replace people at will. But uh, that, that's not how primaries work in the United States. For Definitely. Better or worse. Definitely. So I, I think that that obviously is not in any way present on Twitter. It is already being sort of framed as a Trump versus Biden thing. I mean, if I'm honest, I think that, especially on Twitter, this goes back to the discourse hell that is 2016 and then 2020 and Bernie Sanders' campaign, losing not as closely as people seem to think in 2016 and then Mm. really doing badly in 2020. Kind of this feeling of inevitability really falling apart with Joe Biden actually being nominated. Obviously, right now, with the situation in Gaza, the difference between Trump and Biden has sort of become harder to see if you are that sort of narrowly focused on it. I've been quite critical of Biden's response in Gaza. I don't credit him with making this significantly less worse than it should have been. I think that he's sort of been hoping that that Netanyahu will stop being a genocidal psychopath and that just certainly isn't going to happen. No. I think it's also still possible that Trump would be worse. I think it's it's very possible that he wouldn't have put any pressure on Netanyahu to not expel Gazans into the Sinai. And that, that that very well might have been something that happened and something worse than even the Nakba. On the other hand, I can hardly give Biden that much credit for this. But I, I feel like that Gaza is 
it's a marginal issue as much as it sort of feels, especially on Twitter, as something that like is existential. Right. Because it's taken over everything on Twitter. It's this absolutely existential thing. Yeah, everyone's gone completely insane. Even people that I liked have gone one way or another Mm -hmm. on this issue into places that I just simply cannot follow them. It's crazy. It's really, really crazy to look at it and see just how far down the rabbit hole this whole thing has gone since this all started. And again, looking at at sort of the the opinions of the American public, an incredible, absolutely incredible poll came out yesterday about aid to Palestinians, where 25% were in favor of increasing aid, 25% were in in favor of decreasing aid, 25% were in favor of keeping aid at the same level, and 25% of people did not know. And if anything says the way that this actually plays out in real life, more than that, I, I don't know what it is. No, that sounds about right. That sounds about like where I think people are at this point. Even as an enthusiastic supporter of a unilateral ceasefire where Israel gives up on trying to remove Hamas by military means and sort of goes back to trying to to work a political solution, I am cognizant in a way that I think some of my my fellows are not that the support for a ceasefire is not one that necessarily has kind of any ideological goals behind it. It's basically just get it off the news. Um, I don't like this. I don't like seeing this. Biden was supposed to get rid of this. Why is it still happening? Right. Which is just an incredibly like selfish and self-centered view of things, but that's the American electorate for you. Right. And absolutely delusional when you think about the history of the region. It's like, this is our generations. The Middle East is really fucked up. Yeah, and it, and it's something that goes it goes back even further than than the Bush administrations. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to the British. This goes back to the Ottomans, if you really want to go there. But I mean, this is really a yeah. sense of like there are too many people who don't like each other living in the same region and competing for the same resources. Yeah, and that one group that has more of the power has been acting in particularly bad faith. I think is the other thing to, to oh, absolutely. emphasize. Um, absolutely. It's easy to put it in a sort of like, well, Palestinians and Israelis will never get along. I think there was a period in which there was some possibility of moving towards a two-state solution with um, the Oslo Accords and with sort of those agreements that was systematically undermined and sabotaged by right-wing forces, eventually leading to the Likud government and Bibi Netanyahu, right. where the Palestinian Authority, which was supposed to be sort of the, the counterweight to the Israeli government, was was undermined at every turn. Opportunities for reproachment were not taken. Um, and then when you had the the elections in Gaza, which in which Hamas won a narrow plurality, it wasn't even a majority, but then sort of staged an, an armed coup of the, the Palestinian Authority government there, it was taken as an opportunity to divide and conquer. And this is a reality that it's led to where we are right now, where Gaza was sort of left on its own under effect- effectively a blockade, at least of quite a bit of sort of stuff that would have would have helped improve the lives of the people there and kind of ignored while Israeli government focused on the West Bank. And then that all blew up on the, the 7th of October. Right. And this is sort of the reality that I feel like Joe Biden's administration is simply not engaging with, which is very, very frustrating. So I think that you have on the one hand, Joe Biden 
not really seeming to understand what's going on over there. Right. On the other hand, you have just the sheer malice of the Republicans and the Trump administration and their sort of lockstep support for Israel to the extent of not considering Palestinians fully human. Right. And it's very clear that, you know, if Netanyahu got to vote and got to decide, he would be a Trump guy. Yeah, well, that's we know that. And uh-huh. that's one of the things that makes makes Biden's support of him so baffling and frustrating is that he very clearly doesn't want Joe Biden in office. He very clearly prefers Trump. Yeah. Not to get too far in the weeds with that. I, th- I think that while it's easy to sort of get stuck into the, the, the Palestinian thing, that's, that's only part of what's going on here. The Biden administration is doing a lot of thing. If, I mean, if I'm honest, they've been more progressive. They've been less conciliatory towards the right. They've been less focused on austerity than I kind of feared that they might be in 2020. Right. The Biden administration has, in fact, pretty much purged austerity from the kind of democratic platform. And boy, is that a welcome thing. Yeah. Yeah. We don't seem to hear about that anymore. Yeah. Like no one's talking about, well, we need to reduce the federal deficit besides weirdos like Manchin, who's no longer going to be an issue. Right. (laughs) So there are fewer shared talking points in terms of fiscal spending. And the reappointment of, of Powell was clearly the right move seemed to be one of the rare things that Trump got right somehow was was appointing Trump Powell, waiting to hike interest rates. Yeah, Trump got a few right, not very many. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's, I think, something to, to emphasize is that anything he did well was pretty much by accident. The idea of Trump as someone who's going to advance even populist goals is delusion left over from 2016. Totally. He is a self-centered, authoritarian-leaning reactionary who is perfectly happy to let the freakish evangelical conservatives do whatever the hell they want. And he's making absolutely no secret of it. No, he, he's not a moderate on anything. And no. he's, he, he's in fact happily taking credit for the repeal of, of Roe v. Wade um, because mm-hmm. it gets him applause at his rallies. Uh-huh. It's very simple in some ways uh, in that he kind of, he wants people to tell him he's good. Mm-hmm. And he's definitely getting that particular praise, and it'll be interesting to see how that translates at the at the polling places in November. It certainly will be. So let's switch gears just a little bit here. You mentioned in the intro you, you're involved with the DSA. So mm-hmm. for those in the audience who haven't necessarily spent a whole lot of time thinking about the DSA, can you explain a little bit about what that is and what you guys are up to as far as current plans for local and national races in November and beyond? So, I mean, DSA is Democratic Socialists of America. It's not a new movement. Going back to Michael Harrington, going back into sort of the, the 20th century, there, there was this tradition, um, especially following Eugene Debs. But it really was the Bernie campaign in 2016 that sort of revitalized it and sort of brought a lot of politically interested people into sort of the DSA orbit, trying to become a bit more effective and working through the Democratic Party to sort of try to, to move towards a social democratic um, society and, right. and, and government. I mean, that that entails a certain degree of competition and rivalry because they are competing in Democratic primaries. But I think that one of the things that makes them very different than the Greens or any other movement is that they're not running on the ballot line against Democrats. 
in right. the general election. And that's important. They're making their case in the primary. And if people like it, they'll vote for it. Some Democrats certainly deserve to get primary. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think the idea of them as these wreckers or as these sort of people that are trying to get Republicans to win, there are a lot of ways that the DSA could be doing that if if they wanted to. Not necessarily hugely effectively, because there's not really a huge demand for that. That's why the Greens right. are such a mess. But it really it could be worse in that regard. The other thing to remember about DSA and one of the things that sort of drew me to it is that in addition to kind of having this electoral apparatus in terms of endorsing candidates and sort of getting out for certain candidates, it's an activist organization. Right. It has a lot of a lot of moving parts. It's very decentralized, uh, for better or worse. And I think that the most effective work it's doing is local and state level legislators and officials. I think all the sound and fury on Twitter is pretty limited in terms of its actual impact. Whereas you have DSA members in the New York State Legislature who helped push for essentially the sort of New York State's version of the Green New Deal, the biggest climate legislation that's really been passed by a Democratic-controlled state. I met a lot of people on DSA through Twitter, to be fair, <laughs> and kind of as my my own opinion sort of shifted towards the left, I sort of found a certain degree of common cause with at least some of them. I took a chance and decided to join the organization once I moved back to the United States, and my chapter is really chill. Uh, it, huh. It's nice, and mostly it's because they're not very online, I'm probably the most online person there. And I, I think that that's something that people need to keep in mind is that a lot of People in DSA aren't invested in refighting Hillary versus Bernie or Biden versus Bernie 24-7. Right. Or interested in talking about foreign policy really at all, much less sort of being unrepentant tankies about it. <laughs> it seems like there's definitely sort of that line. Yeah, I mean, I understand that for your audience, their exposure to DSA is less friendly than that. The DSA International Committee is an absolute fucking disaster. And <laughs> despite being a brand new member, I'd have them all expelled if I had a choice about it. <laughs> yeah, they haven't exactly covered themselves with glory over there. They're completely detached from what anyone wants. And I think one thing that's worth keeping in mind is that over the summer at the DSA convention, there was a vote to dissolve the BDS working group. And Boy, oh boy, was that fortunate because they would have been an absolute nightmare in the wake of the 7th of October. So there's a recognition that some of the kind of the parts of DSA aren't helpful to the whole and that certain parts of it are potentially not necessarily worth keeping around. Right. I, I think that I am on the kind of the, the more right flank of DSA at this point in terms of my kind of continued interest in electoral politics and all of that, right. which is fine. I'm not going to tell the organization to do what it is as a, a new member, but I would say that there is potentially more pushback against kind of these extremist off-putting factions than I think people give it credit for. The problem is that because it is a decentralized organization, you can't really just tell these people necessarily to shut up. Though they kind of have in the case of the International Committee, and they've 
really kind of reeled in some of their Twitter posting, which has has caused quite a bit of consternation. Right. I think the thing to keep in mind is that DSA is running on the Democratic ballot lines. They're trying to beat Republicans in November, just like Democrats are. They are, are certainly not interested in helping Republicans win, even if they're certain Democrats, they certainly would rather see lose. And frankly, I find their targets all pretty understandable a lot of the time. Right. I think there's there really is a distinction between the online left and what is starting to become of an organized left in the United States. I mean, I think that it can be easy to overstate how important DSA is, how influential it is, how many members it has. It's more in comparison to what there was before that makes it look more impressive. Right, right. Because there was nothing. There was literally there nothing really before was. that. There's nothing. There's not, nothing. The, the equivalent of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the Bush era period was Cynthia McKinney, who is a <laughs> rabid anti-Semite lunatic who lost to Hank Johnson, who once expressed concern that Guam might tip over if too many people were on it, yet somehow some was still an upgrade. <laughs> and people like Dennis Kucinich and all of that, like a Bernie-led left with the squad, with Tlaib and Ocasio-Cortez and, and Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman is just leagues better than what we had. And I feel like that that is something that is worth keeping because it is providing a place for left-wing individuals who are serious about making political change to go that isn't just find progressives in the Democratic Party, which especially if you're in a place like New York where the Democratic Party is both corrupt and ineffective and actively hostile to the left, that's not a a very interesting place for for people with socialist views to go. Um, I think having the DSA in those situations, in, in those blue states where there's a lot of basically Republicans running as Democrats. Mm-hmm. It helps keep them honest to some extent. It does. I, I think that that's absolutely happened in, in New York, especially. Yeah. And it can be fractious. It can be, it can be unproductive. There are grifters, but I feel like the, the ratio of grifters to activists in DSA is substantially lower than pretty much any other left-wing organization. Right which is one of the reasons why I decided to join them and sort of try to put my stamp on it. And so my chapter has been more involved in kind of local politics, especially in sort of trying to overhaul the voting system here and instituting something called star voting, which basically is, it's a form of ranked choice, but it's okay. it's a little less sort of convoluted. Uh, it's basically right. you rank candidates and kind of the, the stuff gets tabulated and then, at that point, you have kind of a runoff between two candidates, and then your sort of preference between them sort of comes into it. It's an idea to try to get more people involved with this, to feel less like they have no choice between a Democrat they may not like and a Republican. Right. And that's been one of the major priorities of, of my chapter, as well as sort of the mutual aid. I'm based in, in, in Eugene Springfield, and there's a lot of homeless people here. There's sort of an effort to try to to try to help that, to try to alleviate that, and protecting LGBT rights and abortion rights. Um, reproductive justice is a major part of what they're doing. I mean, we're a small chapter, and there's only so much only so much we can do at this point. But 
it's nice to have a, a group of people to organize with right. that have some idea of how we can potentially make change beyond just posting on Twitter. And I think that that's the reason why I decided to join was because I wanted to do something other than posting. Right. And, you know, that's an area that has always had a pretty committed activist scene in the real world. People that have always gone out and done real stuff, be it environmental stuff, mm -hmm. be it food, not bomb stuff, be it stuff that actually benefits the community. So, yeah, that's definitely a place where I could see something like this taking hold and people saying, OK, so how do we get how do we get somewhat serious about this? How do we take this online energy and transfer that into the real world and really making a difference? Because I think we spend entirely too much time. I mean, I know I do. I don't know about you, but spend entirely too much time thinking about what the online world is like. And you have to get out there sometimes and realize it's like, mm, no, most people, most people have no idea about any of this kind of stuff. They just don't care. Like, yeah, like the, the left is not your least favorite left-wing posters right everything that's going on right now with will stancil which stancil and i have a sort of tendentious relationship because i actually used to be more critical of his of his sort of <laughs> inevitable or his just sort of like unceasing criticism of the democratic party and nancy pelosi especially right has sort of swung the other way where now he is like Biden's strongest soldier but is now fighting with the left and now is convinced <laughs> that the left is this existential threat to the democratic party it's just like no you're just fighting with a bunch of lunatics on twitter right it's not representative of everything right and they'll keep going as long as you will people said that like a lot of normal people have left twitter because it's such a cesspool yeah yeah a lot of sort of more reasonable voices I and mean, some of them ended up on blue sky blue sky has its own sort of its own vibe um mm -hmm. which sometimes i hang out there sometimes i don't but there's a bunch of people that have left for Blue Sky. They've left for sort of other things, or they've just decided to to bail out entirely. Mm -hmm. Twitter was already an echo chamber. It has shrunk. It is now uh -huh. just a bunch of people yelling at each other, and considerably less in terms of activism and wide-reaching discourse. And at this point, I stay on it mostly because I have a lot of friends there, <laughs> and because it kind of helps me refine some of my ideas. I mean. This, to bring it back to the, the post that I made, that this was sort of a a long Twitter post, essentially, because I've right. been talking about this for months, even years. And you're not Bill Ackman, so you're not going to do it all in one post. <laughs> what on earth was that? No, I, I refuse to give Elon Musk any of my money, so I'm not verified. <laughs> I will tell you in 100,000 words why I am not mad. <laughs> Just and then tomorrow I'm going to get up and write another hundred thousand words about why I'm not mad. It's like, okay. We get it. You're not mad. Really? Yeah. No, yeah. Definitely not mad. Huh. So in your mind, where is the line between being a liberal and being on the left? Where's the di distinction between those two terms? Um, I think that it has to do with how much you want to challenge the status quo. I think that liberals are trying to sort of improve things leftists are trying to change things and i have a lot of people that identify as liberals that i think quite fondly of and i used to be more sort of a progressive liberal myself progressive is a term that is just very difficult to sort of to pin down it's kind of the want to improve the status quo more than people that sort of are like things are okay we just make some tweaks around the edges right but unfortunately, I feel like, especially on Twitter, it collapses into kind of factionalism about 
the Democratic Party and the sort of the the center left and sort of the, the, the pace of the country and that kind of thing. I don't think that that's really what it's about. Yeah, if, if anything, your list, I'd like your listeners to take away from this, this whole thing is just Twitter is not real life, even no. more than it already wasn't real no, life. No, it's gotten far, far worse in the last year. It's become a lot less useful to political campaigns, mm-hmm. I think is, is one of the things to keep in mind. Because advertisers are left in droves, the moderation's completely collapsed. It's a town square, all right, in the case of like lunatics yelling at each other across the town square. <laughs> it's like there's a handful of sane, rational people out there, and then there's. I mean, I try my best to be one of them. <laughs> I think sometimes I succeed more than others. Um, I've also got a bit insane since the 7th of October. Yeah. And I really think that that has just made it so much worse. Mm-hmm. Like, it sparked this particular sort of niche issue i mean i don't mean niche in the sense of not important but one that isn't a common concern of a lot of people it's not a kitchen table issue for the most part in this country no it's it certainly isn't and it's become this just overwhelming back and forth fighting over whether biden's complicit in genocide or whether genocide is happening at all or whether or not like it's just like twenty four thousand people or something like that are dead plus the 1200 or so who died on the 7th of October. Mm -hmm. It's not obvious that this is accomplishing anything. And it's not obvious to me that Biden is doing anything to make it any better beyond just not actively trying to make it worse. But it's also an issue that like, is it with that poll where everything is literally split a quarter of the population? Yeah. People just aren't that interested in it and aren't that invested in it outside of sort of certain communities. And there's a lot of focus, I think, right now, especially in Michigan with the the higher Muslim um, or just Arab population, not necessarily Muslim, right, right. Um, and their potential role in this. I think that that's overblown. I think that, first of all, they are a more conservative voting bloc than people think they are. Uh-huh. They were already drifting away from Democrats over sort of social issues. So the number of left-wing Arab community leaders and stuff that would potentially vote for Biden, if not for this, is is lower than people think. Right. I know that the main guy in Michigan who's spearheading a lot of this stuff has been screaming about how the Democrats are too soft on LGBTQ, and he's never going to vote Democrat as a result of that. This is what it yeah. seems like his newest way to drag the Democrats rather than any big new principled stand. And I, and I think for a lot of people, it is heartfelt. I mean, I think for Rashida Tlaib, it's certainly heartfelt mm-hmm. that this is, this is unjust. This is something that the United States should not be facilitating. Right. But yeah, they're rat fuckers, they're grifters, same as it always was. And ultimately, I think it's a much smaller percentage of the population than people think it is. The kind of brain-dead swing voters who thought Republicans didn't actually mean they wanted to to like ban abortion when they repeatedly said they wanted to ban abortion are a larger percentage of the population and frankly going to be the ones that decide what happens in November more than online leftists or Arab Americans. Even in Michigan, I think that's the case. And that's kind of terrifying right there. It's terrifying, but it's also like we're, we've seen we've seen a break there and I'm like, okay, maybe Maybe that the, they won't completely fuck us over this time. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I certainly want to believe that. 
just out of selfish and just disgust with the Republican Party. So kind of the last question I have, because again, you, you're a hell of a writer. You've putting some good ideas to paper here. And I would like to know how you think that we could get better at our messaging. You brought up Will Stansel, and that's one thing that he's been talking about a little bit. And I, I tend to agree with him on this, that we, as a democratic party, as a left movement, liberals, whatever you want to call this, everybody who opposes the idea of an authoritarian regime winning in November have to get better at messaging. How do you think we do that? What kind of stories can we be telling that would open up that possibility of being able to, to talk to some of these people a little more, some of these people in the center who haven't necessarily thought about this? I mean, I think that continuing to focus on the sort of the contrast between Democrats and Republicans on these sort of social civil liberty issues, really pointing out just how extreme Republicans are and now having the like, they appealed Roe v. Wade, what do you think they're going to do next? Really emphasizing that, especially with Mike Johnson, who's really just a, a described him as a theocrat. And I, I stand by that, that distinction. Mm -hmm. I think there is unfortunately still value in like being like, I'm a problem solver who's going to go and fix Washington to work on both sides of the aisle. I, I think that that messaging is actually still more important than people think it is, especially because we're trying to win over some of these swing voters who are like, Washington is broken. Right. Because Republicans broke it. <laughs> yes. So I, I feel sometimes like Stancil already discounted that because it didn't kind of fit his priors and now has sort of gone into this thing where he's really equating all of the crazies on Twitter to the left writ large. Right. Right. Like, and that's what happens when you argue with these people when you just get up and do this every day. Exactly. Like when you just make it your entire personality, it's right. like, of course you're eventually going to feel this way. Yeah. I mean, it's not that I disagree with him on a lot of this stuff, but he needs to go outside at some point and realize oh, that, God. like, this is a whole group of people who have nothing better to do than fight with you at this point. No one needs to touch grass more than Will Stancil at this point, besides, like, some of the particularly insane, <laughs> like... Yes. <laughs> people know who I'm talking about, uh, the certain Disco Elysium um, profile pictures. Um <laughs> They should all go play a nice soccer game outside or something, you know, go outside and just kick go a ball for a around walk. for a couple hours. Go for a walk, delete Twitter off of your phone. Mm -hmm. Like just, just the real yeah. world that's um, out there. Go check it out. So yeah, in terms of messaging, I think that there's certainly value in like people in kind of these suburban swing districts continuing to sort of harp on these things that kind of sound really tiring to us. But I think that nationally, emphasizing just how extreme the Republicans are, because that seems to be the thing that's driving the rejection of them, that just this perception of Republicans is just these weird freaks who are way too interested in people's genitals and <laughs> like what's going on between a pregnant person and their doctor and right. like what's going on in the bedroom, like and yelling about furries using litter boxes <laughs> in 
in schools, which is like it's literally <laughs> the kind of like Shane email shit that like oh yeah yeah your totally is. your grandma would get like worked up about twenty years ago it has somehow become like a feature of the messaging of Republican campaigns. And it's just like what the fuck? <laughs> Whatever the post millennials talking about this week. What are you doing? I don't mind it because it's it's making you look like a bunch of complete freaks. But like, man, what? <laughs> so I, I think that emphasizing those contrasts as well as trying to, I mean, hopefully economic sentiment is going to drew. We're starting to see signs of that right. as, as inflation falls. Hopefully there'll be some rate cuts coming. Um so I think that messaging on the economy sort of to try to take credit for it when it flips is something that is important to do. I think I mostly feel right now that it is very difficult to run against Trump when he's not technically the nominee yet. And so many people are in denial that he's going to be. Right. I think messaging really doesn't matter at this point, if I'm on, perfectly honest. Like Twitter ads don't do much like even the the ads biden's running in television right now don't do very much right the idea that if democrats don't do what you want them to do in january of 2024 they're trying to lose it's just like again go outside yeah like it's all going to snap a little more into place when they finally pull the trigger at the convention and you know and coronate yeah no if if the polls aren't completely fucked then we should see a major shift and I absolutely agree with you on the polls being fucked. I mean, I think that was one of the big underreported stories. A guy named Simon Rosenberg was really all over that in 2022. And when you started looking into the composition of some of these polls, you realize it's like, this one is two high school kids from Virginia who somehow <laughs> talked to 800 randos and it's being weighted in the New York Times average. Yeah. And this is not a way to run a polling outfit at all. Rasmussen, which is basically just entirely vibes of this weirdo, crazy reactionary. Right. And you find yourself thinking like, someone's wrong here. Either the polls aren't lining up with reality or somehow reality is wrong. And as you saw the returns come in, like, you know, early voting is a thing now. The Republicans hate it, but it is. You're getting all these ballots and you're realizing that the Republicans are going to have to have one hell of a day election day turnout to get the other side of this. And the other thing is that it's not just about turnout. It's about persuasion. I mean, in HD 35, you had a Republican leaning electorate, but NPA voters broke like 70% in favor of Keene. Right. And that certainly fits the sort of thing where you get a, a, a neutral or Republican leaning electorate and Gretchen Whitmer is winning by 10 points. Mm-hmm. And when you look into that Keene race, he ran on abortion and he ran on insurance and insurance coverage, yeah. which is a huge issue down in Florida. Yeah, no. And I think that that's another thing that needs to be kept in mind. Individual candidates will run their own campaigns. National campaigns don't really matter all that much at this point. Like what Biden's doing isn't as nearly as important as what any of the Democratic Senate candidates are doing or some of the, the House representatives in more contested races. They're focusing pretty heavily on abortion, not on the sort of larger economic situation, that sort right. of thing. Because a lot of times it's a pretty losing issue for them. Definitely. 
And frankly, I think that's just more effective. It means more. It reaches fewer eyeballs on Twitter, which is why I think people think it's not happening. But it very clearly is. Yeah. So I think that we kind of need to just take a step back and wait for things to play out before launching into either triumphalist or doomer takes on everything, especially doomer stuff because it's Twitter. Yeah. I mean, I, I make a case in my essay that we could be headed for a pretty substantial democratic victory. If mm -hmm. you look at the persuasion component of the midterms and of the 2023 elections and of the, the special elections combined with what should be average or above average base turnouts, typically of minority voters, the democratic coalition, if those two things hold, Biden's going to win pretty easily. And there's even a chance the Democrats might keep the Senate. And I, I, one point that I sort of did make at the end was a lot of people have been comparing this to a situation of like 1968, where there's an unpopular war and an unpopular incumbent, and maybe he should drop out so someone else can take over. And of course, obviously that didn't work in 1968. No, <laughs> not especially. I see it very differently. I see Dobbs and the sort of splintering of the Bush coalition between evangelicals and sort of moderate suburbanites as more akin to the passing of the Civil Rights Act and the Great Society legislation. It is such a fundamental sort of violation of the kind of the, the pact between the party and the people who have voted for it that it could break the Republican Party going forward, especially if, if Trump is convicted of crimes and yet still runs, which I fully expect him to do. Right. I don't know if we're actually going to get Trump campaigning for a jail cell, but I really hope he did. Uh, oh, absolutely. That, that's, that's where things could get really interesting, because as much as people are like, well, nothing sticks to Trump, Americans don't really like criminals running for office. Mm -hmm. I mean, criminals or perceived criminals, that was one of Hillary's problems. That was one of Andrew Gillum's problems in Florida. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be real hard not to perceive him as a criminal if he's in jail and he's trying to run a campaign. And that's the other component to this is right now the focus is mostly on Biden. And Trump's even been ducking the debates in the primary. Right. He's going to have to get out there at some point, if only because he's going to be covered in all of these trials. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Eileen Cannon one probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon, but the New York one and the Georgia one, Penny Willis seems to be particularly aggressive on that one. And then sort of the, the two ones by, by the DOJ and, and Jack Smith. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. There's a lot of um, sort of things, stuff in the air that could look yeah. very bad for Trump going forward. So I feel like the political environment right now between the overfocus on what's going on in Gaza, which, I mean, I have very strong feelings about, but most Americans don't. And Biden being the one who's sort of on the most exposed and Trump really being able to hide is one that's going to change dramatically. And frankly, I expect the polls to start reflecting that to some extent, because I don't know that it's necessarily that they're weighting Republicans badly or anything. I think they're just trying to take conclusions out of data that doesn't really give them much and you end up with this sort of like young voters are like breaking for trump and it's like no they're not they're obviously not yeah show me that person in real life show yes, me like, that who, are, person. who are these like literally who are these people right right show me a young person that's breaking for trump you know come on it's just yeah not. no it's 
this idea of, of racial depolarization, race dip, um, yeah. where more white people vote for Democrats and more um, non-white people vote for Republicans is also a kind of, yeah, there's some evidence of it, especially in kind of blue states, but like black voters seem pretty lockstep behind Democrats. That's not likely to change. And they still have an advantage with Hispanic voters, even if it's not as great as it was. Right. So who knows? I could be wrong about all of this. Sure, we all could, but... We could be headed for a Trump victory and a Republican trifecta, and this country could be absolutely fucked and up a river with no paddle. But I'm relatively confident at this point that seeing the state of the Republican Party and their consistent underperformance, their struggle to message in ways that don't come off as absolute freaks, and their disinterest, I think, in appealing to kind of normal people... (laughs) I think we're headed for a very different outcome than that. Definitely. Been wrong before, but I yeah. feel more safe about this one than I do with some of my other ones. So we'll see. We will indeed. Ross, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. You've really given me some stuff to think about and hopefully everybody else and really appreciate your time. You take care of yourself and stay safe. Will do. Thanks for listening to the did nothing wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, You can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at grizzabjj, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNWpod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.